welcome to Two Guys in the Bible, a conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Eric Leupold, joined uh, as always with my co-host Dylan Keniston. Good morning, Dylan. How are you? Good morning, Eric. Doing well, brother. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. Never been this good. Excellent. Yeah, I always enjoy having recordings with uh, with you and having a, a guest as well on today. And today we are joined by uh, Doc uh, Christensen, Dr. Chris Christensen, uh, who's been on the show before. We've talked about, uh, I believe, abortion. Um, and uh, we're doing our, uh, our discussion today on a kind of related topic. We were talking about uh, honoring life and respecting life uh, in the womb. And now we're going to be talking about uh, kind of life towards the end of living. And um, uh, this is kind of like our take two of our recording. We had some technical difficulties with our, our first attempt at this, but uh, that's all on God's hands. And so now we get another chance, another chance at it to, uh, to go on to this uh, important topic. Um, so a- anyways, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Doc. brother. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, if you would, please, I mean, we're going to dive right into it. If you would just give a brief introduction uh, as far as your experience, your job, who you are uh, as we come into this topic. So I'm a um, pulmonary and critical care um, physician at Abington Jefferson Health. We're actually at Lansdale uh, Health as well right now. And I've been in practice since the late 80s. So I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, And my uh, training and expertise brings me into the intensive care unit, Uh, I would say an average of uh, 10 days a month that we're in the intensive care unit. So there we are faced with uh, life and death decisions on a daily basis, and a lot of that is end-of-life decision-making for individuals who either have thought about it or not thought about it. So these are very, very important uh, questions that you you guys are trying to wrestle with. And as you kind of, in your intro, um, uh, alluded to, it really is a sanctity of life issue. So um, it's not unlike the uh, abortion issue. The end-of-life decision-making is largely the same, quite frankly. And it worries me, quite frankly, in this country where we have done such a bad job on the beginning of life um, and I think we are struggling with decision-making at the end of life as well, probably because of the same problems and flaws in thinking hmm. um, as we go forward. So that's kind of what we're dealing with, boots on the ground in the ICU. So yeah. it'll be fun to talk about it today. Yeah. We've used the term before, uh, euthanasia, which I- I'm sure hopefully a lot of people are familiar with that term. But if you would uh, kind of inter- as an introduction to the topic, I mean, would you kind of define that term for us and maybe some of the different types or categories yeah. of euthanasia? So we, we kind of differentiate between euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. They're okay. really two separate uh, concepts. So physician-assisted suicide is what's being um, allowed. In, I think there are eight states now in the United States that uh, permit physician-assisted suicide. Euthanasia, which is the uh, involuntary t- taking of an individual's life um, by a physician, is outlawed in the United States. But it is uh, legal in the Netherlands, Belgium. I think there's a few other countries where euthanasia is uh, allowed. So it's to be distinguished from physician-assisted suicide where the individual has some say. And and it's really voluntary, and the physician is just assisting that person at um, uh, terminating their life. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So that helps to 
bring some clarity to the to the d- defining our terms there. And and you mentioned that um, the one is not currently legal in the United States. Correct. What's been the I mean, is there like a history behind the concept of euthanasia? I mean, is this kind of like a modern thing or yeah. how long has it been going on? Well, I mean, it goes all the way back to the Greeks and Romans. This is like like most things in the West. There, everything <laughs> kind of can be traced back to the Greeks and Romans. And so this is something they were dealing with. The hemlock, if you remember, was the agent that they used in um, uh, the uh, Greek times. Uh, to kind of end somebody's life, and so, but in, but we really got away from it for <laughs> no more for centuries. Uh, we don't use hemlock anymore. Um, uh, but in the modern era, it's it has kind of come back into vogue because there are uh, end of life movements, right to death movements uh, that are out there. Um, it's a little worrisome because unlike physician-assisted suicide, which there are some problems with that, by the way, euthanasia is the physician making a decision as to whether uh, this is a life worth living. And, and actually, in the modern era, going back to 1920, <clears throat> this was something that was being debated in uh, Germany. There, were, um, there was plenty of literature reporting about the concept of a life not worth living. So Lebenswerten Lebend was the, the uh, German phrase that was used, and there were several authors who were promoting it, and, and it ultimately gave rise to, in 1939, the National Socialist Party adopting that whole concept. So, but that, was, that existed before the so, Nazis had took yeah, the power. Yeah, they were having a conversation. It was not the law of the land, but, it, but the, the National Socialists saw it as a way to start to purify the Aryan race. And so they targeted people who were physically and mentally ill were Hmm. some of the characterizations. And then we all know how that evolved, where it became uh, a way to target your political enemies, um, individuals that they saw as uh, not pure, Aryan. Like like undermentioned. Yeah, correct. Less than human. Yes, less than human, yeah. Although they, they considered the Slavs less than human, but they use them because they use them as slaves. So they didn't kill them because they had function. I see. So these were individuals that they saw as being a drain on society, that they were not contributing to society. So you can see how if you take that concept and fast forward to the year 2019, and you're looking at patients with dementia, patients with advanced uh, disease who are not contributors but who are a drain on society, it's not a big leap to get from 1920 to 1939 to 2019. And um, so the euthanasia movement is a little bit um, unnerving, quite frankly, given our human history, which is that we haven't gotten it right a fair amount of the time. So, and here we are kind of reenacting some of these uh, bad plays. Wow, that that's, that's quite disturbing in the... In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, to think about how, you know, right. everyone hates the Nazis. Everyone's, you right. know, the best way to insult someone is to call them a Nazi, a Nazi. or to say right. that they're Hitler, yeah. you know. But in a way, our culture's almost adopted some of those ideas. Yeah. And this media has personalized it. Right. Um, you know, you know, the state's not necessarily at this point picking, like, who lives and who dies. But, no. But they're encouraging, like, it's almost like an encouragement, you know, if it's a drain on your family— Maybe you should consider right. having grandma euthanized, or maybe she should 
she should take bite the bullet, if you will. Right. You know, using the pun. Well, look, we can. Uh, I, I don't want to go too far afield sure. here, but we, you know, we had somewhat this debate when we were arguing about uh, affordable health care. You know, the Obamacare plan is the pie is only so big. The economic health care pie is only so big. Um, and so how do you want to spend your money? So the argument they would always put forward is, well, you could take that $20 million and invest it in vaccinations in the inner city, or you could support people who are dying on respirators and people who need dialysis. And, you know, is that really the best way to spend your tax dollars? So you can see if you frame it economically, it no longer becomes a moral, but an economic question. But you end up on the exact same square that the Germans did in 1920 to 1939, yeah. where they're making determinations on a life not worth living because of the cost. Okay. Right. That's... So we're, we're heading. And now, you know, the, what's the current buzz? Medicare for all. So we're now heading into this election cycle, 2020, which is a few weeks away. And we're going to have this conversation in, yeah. in the next year. You know, yeah. how how are we going to provide health care for our society, American society, and who's going to pay for it? And then, you know, in the, um, the U.K., they've already made determinations that after the age of 65, no one will get dialysis. Wow. So that's it. So that means that it doesn't matter if you're in realizing that um, longevity has been expanding for for decades now, so that the um, a typical projection is in the 80s, and we're doing open heart surgery on people in their late 80s and early 90s right now because they're very functional, very sharp, very functional. Um, and so, who's to make the decision that well, you will or you won't get a dialysis? And so, if you have means, you can pay for your own dialysis, yes. but the but in a universal health care plan where it's the government paying, the government will make those decisions as to who will and who won't get certain types of health care. That's interesting. Now, I'm, I'm going to bring Dylan in on a couple of questions on that. But I, I do want to ask you in your own personal practice, I mean, how many people have come up to you? I mean, you, they get diagnosed with something horrible right. and, you know, they maybe want to think about or talk about that. I mean, I know that people think economically right. in some regards. But maybe also they think in other in other ways about why they should consider trying to end it or so. I mean, have you right. experienced that as a doctor one on one? Oh, a lot because it's you know, there are a lot of aspects of uh, dying. Remember it's the dying process we're talking about. For for a believer, especially, death is not so fearful. But even for a believer, dying is a little scary. Yeah. So it's the act of getting there that's a little scary. The process. So what we try and assure them is in the modern era, um, and so this is where you have to contrast what I'm about to say with what the euthanasia movement will argue. In okay. the modern era, we are very, very good at providing comfort measures. So if somebody is in the act of dying, they're dying. And whether that's hours, days, weeks, months, we can really um, give them peace of mind that they're not going to suffer in the sense that they're going to have uh, conscious pain, agony, suffering. So the euthanasia movement will tell them that you're going to have um, unrequited uh, pain and suffering and you're not going to have relief. It's better to flip the switch and end Oh, it. I see. 
They will also put on them the whole concept of uh, uh, you're not going to be a burden to your family mm. and to your survivors if we just end your life now. So that is another guilt trip that they will uh, lay on um, the individual to try and move them in the direction of physician-assisted suicide. We, we, since we don't have euthanasia in the United States, really the arguments are to push them in the direction of physician-assisted suicide. Mm. But um, we don't do it. If One thing, we don't do that in Pennsylvania. So it's not legal in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Actually, it's coming online in Maine uh, January 1st. So that's the next state to come online with physician-assisted suicide. So there, are, I think there are eight states right now in the United States. And I don't think there's any. New Jersey actually is a physician-assisted suicide huh. state. So there are clinics um, I think in Switzerland, there's a clinic uh, where you can um, book your death. And so they will, it's a way to get around um, the federal laws and the state regulations is to kind of book your good death, if you will, quotes around good death. Um, Which and, is actually where the term euthanasia comes from. Yes, it is. Exactly. Good, good, good death from yeah. the Greek, I believe. So, I, you know, I spend a lot of time with uh, individuals and explain to them and recognizing that there are illnesses unto death, right? So we <laughs> kind of understand the concept that not every illness leads to death, but there are those illnesses that we can pretty confidently predict unless God intervenes with a miracle, which does happen on occasion, um, that there are illnesses that will lead unto death. And we can kind of plot, that's called prognosis. We can give a general prognosis. We're not 100% accurate with that, but we're not terrible either. And we can at least give them a heads up. It's coming. So yeah. I think um, typically what I will do when I'm having that kind of a conversation with a patient initially is I'll, I'll explain to them that even though this seemingly is terrible news that you are on a pathway to death, there are some benefits because you're going to have time before you die to hmm. kind of get your house in order. And I tell them this is an opportunity to get your finances in order so the people that survive you won't have to go through, you know, a mess of files and figure out where um, your money is, where your assets are, uh, and that you can organize that for them and, you know, get help if you need help. Uh, the other thing I tell them is this is an opportunity to reconcile with individuals, family members, or friends that you have been estranged from since you're dying, you may want to say goodbye, ask forgiveness, or offer forgiveness, and there is a healing that can occur there. By the way, if you just kind of end your life and haven't considered these issues, then um, that's, that's an opportunity lost. And then finally, I'll tell them that um, you are entering eternity you know, in whatever period of time your prognosis is. This is an opportunity to reconcile with your maker, because you will be beating your maker very shortly. And then I offer to pray with them or to meet with them and to discuss it further. I've had a handful of patients over the years who have actually taken me up on that. Oh, wow. So, but it's a, you know, is a, it's a fertile mission field, if you will, because these people are clearly moving into eternity. There's no doubt about it, you know, oh, for, wow. for the vast majority of them. So I do have to be respectful and mindful um, because of the privileged position I'm in, not to take advantage of that, to proselytize you know, um, mercilessly, you know, and, and kind of beat them over the head with it. But I want them to know that those three pieces, get your house in order, reconcile relationships, and, and consider eternity. Um, those are important pieces. 
That's interesting. Yeah. Well, so I can appreciate that. I mean, one of the questions that comes to mind as I'm hearing you talk about these things is, you know, what is it? How should we be thinking about dying well as Christians in particular? Like, mm-hmm. what what difference does Christ make to the dying process and to a good death, which you know, kind of has the the word you know euthanasia emboldened over it when when actually a good death might look like something a little bit different. So, you know, what comes to mind is, you know, what God's word and what the local church prepare the Christian for is to die and dying well, because our joy is not just for this life, but for the life to come. We have eternity ahead of us. As you said, it's a delightful prospect for someone who's found in Christ. We don't want to celebrate or glorify death. We know that death is the last enemy, but, you know, but we want to think about how to walk through that door in a manner that glorifies Christ. So, you know, Doc, could you speak a little bit, you know, to that? If you have maybe somebody who's listening, who's kind of, you know, as you say, at the cusp of eternity, uh, you know, soon to to meet their maker. I mean, what are some ways that we as Christians can be thinking about dying well? Yeah. So, look, that whole concept of a good death. Uh, let me just take one step back, if I could, first. Um, I I think that we oftentimes lose sight of the fact that um, suffering is not always something to be avoided, mm-hmm. right? So I think I, uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, said that it's a mistake to want to live in perpetual springtime <laughs> where everything is, you know, flowers just opening, beautiful sunshine, because there's a lot to be gained even through um, yours or a, a loved one's suffering. So, uh, and that's not to say you would wish it on somebody, but when it comes... It's an opportunity for reflection. You know, the Apostle Paul was very clear that he wanted the thorn removed from his side. He, he pleaded, was the, is the word that Scripture uses, pleaded with God three times um, in Corinthians. And, um, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So it does draw the believer when they go through these hard times, these hardships, these dark times. It does draw you closer to your Creator. And so I think that uh, although we are averse to pain and suffering and anxiety and worry and we're averse to it and and our society is so fixated on pleasure and we're an entertainment-saturated society and we want to be titillated all the time, there is benefit to the individual and to their family and to their friends to kind of go through this together. And so I actually kind of uh, roll it all in to that being a big part of a good death is that you have individuals who care for you, who love you, who will be there with you as you go through. Now, that's a secular perspective, by the way. That's, mm. that's not even the biblical perspective. So, you know, in the good death, we should be able to manage their pain. We, the individual should have some control over how things are unfolding so they can decline certain types of activities. So we will present to them, look, we think that this might help, this particular procedure might help, but it's probably not going to prolong your life. Um, then they can say, I really don't want that. And mm-hmm. that's okay. So if they have some control, that's part of the good death. We try and offer them that. As I said um, getting their house in order is part of the good death. I think that's very important. A big part of the good death is how you lived your life, though. <laughs> that's true, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you have lived an unfulfilled life and now you're facing eternity, it's really hard to take that individual and make them feel good about the fact that it's ending. 
So it, again, is an opportunity to try and point them in the direction of Christ, because ultimately, even if they failed in this life, and you could define what failure is, I, it's, that's for each individual to define for themselves, they will have victory in Christ, and they will have an eternity to celebrate um, that victory with Christ. So I, I think it's another opportunity for that individual who is really unhappy about how they've lived their life, how they've destroyed relationships, all the aspects of a failed life, you know, can then be reconciled as they move closer to death. So I think that's very, very important. And then for the believer, it is, um, it is a chance of reflection, of saying goodbye to individuals. It's very precious when that happens. And and you know, you know how hard it is when you say goodbye to a friend who's going going away, moving to another area. We get emotional, we get charged, but we always kind of know in the back of our mind they're there, especially in the modern era where you can text them or Skype them or whatever. But when somebody dies or is dying, mm. if you're not a believer, you don't have that hope of reunion with them. If you're a believer, I mean, I, I've gone to... A lot of my patients' funerals, I've been to a lot of funerals here at, at uh, Hilltown, and there is a difference between a secular funeral and a believer's funeral. And it is that hope that we have, that we, we don't grieve as the world grieves because we know that there will be a reunion in heaven with our loved one. Now, it's going to look a little different than it is here, and without getting into the theology of the hereafter, suffice it to say that it's not a goodbye, it's a see you later. Mm. It's a very different mm -hmm. goodbye than, um, than the world has. It is an emptiness. It's a, it, and they don't, for many of them, they don't understand that it is not annihilation. They think the lights go out and that's it. We know as believers, it's the lights go out and then the lights come on mm. and you don't know where you are. You know, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then it is a fearful eternity. If you're a follower of Christ, you look with great anticipation and excitement to a renewed body. You know, mm. for many of my elderly patients who are believers, they can't wait, you know, for their hips to feel better, for their breathing <laughs> to be better, for their back pain to go away, for all of the things that you accrue as you age all of that is going to be wiped away. Every tear will be wiped away, right, in, mm. in the hereafter where we will have these immortal bodies which are perfect. Hmm. I, I wonder, I often wonder, am I going to have my 21-year-old body <laughs> or my 65-year-old body? Well, I was an athlete, so I'm, I like to, if I have a choice, I'm going to choose my 18-year-old body. <laughs> that was my peak, I think. That's your peak. Nice. No, that was yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just gonna say I I, I love that. I think that's that's you know it, it's it's amazing. Just like we're vegetables now compared to what we'll be oh in, in glory. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it's Broccoli. it's pretty incredible. You know, I I'll just share real briefly. You know, recently I had a I had a surgery, and you know, I, it's not an everyday occurrence. You don't get surgery very often. This was kind of a, you know I've had one surgery before, but I was kind of like not super conscious. You know, for it here I was like okay, ready for it, and they tell you in advance it's gonna happen. So I'd been, you know, and, and it's like, it was a minor surgery comparatively, you know what I mean? Like right. it was not the kind of surgery, like open heart surgery or something like this. It was just, you know, a, a hernia. They, they go and repair it. But, but nevertheless, you know, 
no surgery is really minor. It's the kind of thing where like, you know, one wrong slip of a knife and, and, and that could be it. And so, you know, this uh, happened in my life and kind of caused me to reflect on my own mortality for, mm -hmm. for a season. I think like, you know, someday I'm going to die. And, you know, I, I've happened across this book. It was just super, uh, just a, a tremendous encouragement to me at that time was by Richard Baxter. He's a Puritan preacher. It's Richard Baxter's Dying Thoughts. And he, he says, look, I'm reflecting on my own mortality. Uh, if you want to listen in, Christian, I'm writing this down so you can listen in about how I'm processing this as a Christian, you know, and in what sense death is gain. And, you know, some people go, some people are just very aware of their own mortality. But there's, what struck me about that as I was looking at other books, there's a lot of Christian literature regarding death, about how keeping death in mind helps us to live now. And and that's undoubtedly true. And it was, and it was certainly beneficial, um, you know, maybe not right before a surgery, but, but, you know, that's the angle that a lot of contemporary Christian literature takes. But, you know, there's not a ton, at least that I am aware of as much anyway, of contemporary Christian literature that says, okay, you're going to die and keeping your death in view isn't just for a better life now, but to, but to prepare you for the beauty and benefit of the life to come and to do that without glorifying death. So I would just commend that as a resource to someone who might be listening to this and, mm. you know, preparing uh, for eternity, reflecting on these things from a Christian perspective. Uh, Richard Bacter's dying thoughts was a tremendous encouragement mm -hmm. to my own soul. Yeah. I mean, how is this? I, I try to think about how the world views our perspective as Christians. And, you know, they'll probably, you know, say something like, well, we're all just stardust. We're kind of wasting our, you know, it doesn't really matter. We're all, the lights go out, like you said, when we die. And as I think about that, it seems like there's two, there's two paths, or I guess you could say two ditches on the side of the road that, that unbelievers typically fall into. And the one is like this, doing everything they possibly can to, to stay alive and to grasp hold of life as long as possible with as much effort as possible. But then on the other hand, like just, just getting rid of life, ending life as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. as soon as it becomes a burdensome. I mean, do you see this kind of, it seems contradictory. Yeah. But is that like, no, you're right. There is like a, like a schizophrenia there because we, um, I, I think a lot of this has to do, in my experience anyway, it has to do with uh, individuals who I don't feel as though they've finished their life. Okay. Right, that they still have work to do. I know uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who was probably one of the most creative men who ever lived, was in his final days was very frustrated that he hadn't completed a lot of his work. Now, you think about his <laughs> repertoire of work is like unsurpassed, I think, mm -hmm. um, in, in many different fields. You know, he was a, a, a tremendous uh, painter, sculptor, inventor. Yeah, Renaissance man is what Renaissance man, yeah. yeah. And, but he was very frustrated at the end of life that he really hadn't. Now, he did have a problem with focusing. So a lot of <laughs> he would start a lot of projects and then not finish them. So a lot of his work was unfinished. And the Mona Lisa, which is probably one of the greatest paintings of all time, he never thought he finished it. Really? So, it, you know, it's now in the Louvre and you can go see it. Looks pretty finished to me. But <laughs> but it, if you if he were here today, he would tell you it's not done. He never he never released it as a finished work of art. I, I did so not know that. The Mona That's Lisa. Yeah. So I think for people like Leonardo, 
where they don't feel as though they've really finished their work. They're unaccomplished, if you will. There's a real frustration and fear as they see death approaching. Even if we don't give them the, the prognosis, death is coming, most people can kind of feel their body is decrepitizing. <laughs> they're, they're going downhill, and it's just a matter of time. You know, it's coming. You know, you can't do the things you used to be able to do. Um, and sooner or later, you're going to take your last breath. They can feel it coming. And their window is closing. And that's kind of how they see it for productivity, for their own productivity. So when, that's, when that starts to settle in on them, there's an anxiety that occurs in their lives. And they're looking to healthcare. Like we've got the, the, the uh, fountain of youth. We're going to give them the pill that's going to rejuvenate them and get them back so they can restore this, this life, the meaning to their life. So if they don't have a biblical perspective on life, then they have to create their own meaning for life. And it's pretty hard, quite frankly, you know, because if you are, are living in a world without God, without Christ, without the hope of eternity, then all you have is whatever you've created as a meaning for life. And generally, man falls very short of uh, a quality meaning for life. Yeah. And so there's, that's very frustrating. Yeah. Then th that's, so that's on the one side. On the other side are individuals who now are experiencing some suffering, yes. right? So they're having pain that won't go away, or their memory is failing, um, or they're not able to even get around and do the things that they enjoy doing. And um, that's different for everybody. I mean, it's an amazing thing to me. Let me give you one illustration. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a big, a big group that I take care of are patients with advanced lung disease, in particular emphysema. And so I see these patients who, um, you know, when, when I meet them for the first time, they're afraid they have lung cancer. And so I, you know, I tell them, good news, you don't have lung cancer. And they're very relieved. <laughs> Bad news, you have emphysema. So you're going to live for another 15 years, but you're going to suffer as you go through that 15 years. As you get towards the end of life, you're going to struggle to breathe. You're going to need oxygen. You're going to need people to help you with every activity of daily living because you're going to be so disabled, you won't be able to take care of yourself. Is that yourself. like worse than lung cancer then? It's, it, well, so lung cancer is bad in that you get it and you're gone, you know, in six months to a year, depending upon the stage of your lung cancer. Emphysema you will live longer, but you will suffer more wow. because you'll be around for a while. So here's the interesting thing. This, is, this was really an illustration to me of how we really do have to individualize. So most patients wouldn't want that end of life, right? So if you were to present that to them, they would say, well, when I get to this point, let's stop doing certain things and, and then help me to die well, right? Mm -hmm. But I've, I've had several patients who... What we can do is we can put them on respirators. So they really only have a single organ that's failed, their lungs. And we can put a tracheostomy, a tube in their throat. We can hook them to a respirator, and the respirator will do the work of breathing for them. It's kind of like dialysis oh, yes. is to the kidneys, okay. the respirator is to the lungs. And they can live. Now, the problem is you can't take the respirator with you and go shopping at Walmart you know, it's pretty tough to do that. I guess you could technically if you had enough resources, but it's very expensive to do that. Largely what it means is living in a nursing home the rest of your life on a respirator and having strangers care for you for the rest of your life. So most patients wouldn't want that. 
but but consider this. If you're one of those individuals who is not able to breathe, every breath is agonizing, and now you're breathing well for the first time in a decade, you are happy. This I've had a, several patients who are very happy to exist like that. Now, I don't think I would want that for me. I wouldn't want to be on a respirator in a nursing home for the rest of my life, but some patients would want that. So we do have to kind of individualize what the desires and wishes are of each individual patient. So hmm. that's getting a little far afield. What's but that? so there, it's not one size fits all in this type of decision making. So each individual does have the autonomy, if you will, to make some of these end of life decisions. Hmm. Do you think it's helpful to differentiate between taking active steps to uh, to basically kill you faster versus versus just letting it go and letting God, letting nature take its course, if you will, or letting God be God. Right. And letting, so like one's kind of like a hands-off, you know, we're not going to do the respirator. We're going to stop the dialysis. Right. We're going to stop taking active measures to keep you alive. Right. But we're not actually killing you in a way. You're, you're already dying. Right. You know, is that a fair way to differentiate active versus passive? Eric, that's exactly the way to, to delineate it. I, you know, I'm uh, training uh, doctors, young, young doctors who are uh, training in internal medicine, and they do rotations with us in the intensive care unit. And uh, many of them are influenced by their own cultures. So we have, we have uh, young doctors from all over the world, yeah. you know, India, Pakistan, Nepal, um, even in Europe, they come to uh, America to train. So they're influenced by their cultures, by their own faith systems. Um, and so we have to explain to them very clearly that in these situations, our task is to relieve their suffering, not to accelerate their death. Uh -huh. So we are not in the business of um, exterminating people. We're in, the, we're in the business of caring for people. And that means making sure that they are comfortable when they're in the final phases of life. So, and so it's interesting that we will in those situations where somebody is clearly in the last few hours of their life and they're laboring to breathe or they're having pain, we will hang uh, narcotics in a drip fashion and we will titrate, move up, move down the dose so that we are trying to keep them comfortable. But the goal there. So that's a drug that will terminate their life. If you turn it up a little bit too fast, intentionally, that's a drug that you can overdose on and terminate the life, right? Wow. And so, but the goal, is, and I tell them very clearly, the motive is the most important part here. Hmm. The motive is to keep them comfortable. The motive is not to end their life. Uh, I love that. That's I think that's great. Like, like the goal, as you said, the goal is to ease suffering, is not to end their life. I think that's right. such a helpful framework for thinking through these things. Because like, you know, one of the things that has come up in, you know, prior conversations among us was that, you know, when euthanasia uh, defenders would kind of, you know, articulate their, their defense of it, it would kind of tug on the heartstrings, you know, don't you want right. to stop people from suffering? And I, you know, one of the things that came up in earlier conversation offline was, you know, euthanasia might be based on an antiquated notion of, of modern medicine in relation to suffering, where like there may have been some urgency behind euthanasia when we didn't have modern medicine. There'd be like people dying, like gasping for breath and this clear right. suffering that they would be going through when, where, you know, we might not have had the same uh, sophistication for pain management that we have today. 
But what I'm hearing is there's a distinction between like there's a way to help people die well without helping them kill themselves. Right. Hmm. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, I think it's a false narrative that the um, right to death uh, groups will promote, which is that we don't take care of people when they're dying, that we just let them suffer. Hmm. And so if you if you perpetuate that narrative, then that's very frightening because if you know you're moving into that zone where you're getting into the final phases of life and you hear this chirping that you're going to suffer, you should just end it. So that's the one narrative. The other narrative that we had alluded to earlier is that you're going to be a burden on your family. Nobody wants to suffer and nobody wants to be a burden on their family. I don't know anybody who says, well, I hope I'm around to be a great burden on my family. (laughs) I'm going to get back at them that way. (laughs) So I have yet to meet that person. So I think that um, it's actually just the opposite. Some of the most precious moments I've had in my practice have been at the deathbed. Mm. where Mm. the families are gathered, they are with the individual, they're loving them and talking to them and telling them that they love them. And um, and it's it's a very um, emotional time. And it is, by the way, it's part of the grieving process. So it actually starts before they die. So they Mm. they have closure and reconciliation and they said goodbye. and, And the loved one who's dying says, I love you goodbye, you know, I'm ready to huh. die. And the closure there is amazing. I can imagine someone like feeling like a family member, if, if someone did take their own life or a physician helped them take their life, right. they would feel almost robbed. Like I, I think that's true. Now, in uh, just to, in fair fairness, the uh, the euthanasia movement will these individuals frequently will say their goodbyes before. Oh, yeah. So I so I don't think they run off to Switzerland. <laughs> or maybe some do, but they don't run off to Switzerland and then terminate their life. Many of them do have a a goodbye. You know, like a gender reveal party. They have a goodbye oh. party. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't been invited to any of those. Oh, yeah, that was like a, the reveal party of how I'm going to kill myself. Right, exactly. Like, the, yeah. But this kind of this kind of comes back to what you were talking about earlier, right? Where like there's something sanctifying. There's some yes. way in the dying process that we that we move closer to to Christ and identifying with him more. Like trauma can be binding, right? right? And there's there's just something going on. I mean. You know, I, again, I, I hesitate to use the word mystical. It's probably not the best word here, but it's something like that, right? The Holy Spirit is doing some work in some way unseen until we reach glory as we are going through suffering and as we are approaching death. And that's real. Like, that's really happening. That'll be visible in glory. Yeah. It's just not visible yet, but there's right. something interesting happening there. Yeah. Hmm. What, what would you say then, uh, you know, Christians, I mean, what would you want believers who are listening about this topic, what would you want them to come away with as they as they see the the mantra for for euthanasia or physician assisted suicide growing in our culture? States are starting to pass laws, you know, people are starting to pressure them. Maybe they go to see their doctor in one of these right. states, and the doctor's like, you know what? Maybe you should consider, you know, this pill or this active. Right. You know, your mom's going to be a burden. You know, as Christians are getting bombarded with this, like, what would you want them to take away? I guess the first thing for the believer who's going through this either for themselves or with a loved one yeah. is not to be fearful. Okay. So because there's a lot of fear associated with um, the, the act of dying. 
So that we have in medicine, uh, we've gotten much better at handling end of life. So they don't have to be fearful. They should communicate with their doctors and their specialists, mm-hmm. you know, where they are, what they do and don't want done. There is nothing wrong with um, uh, foregoing heroic care. That's an okay thing. There's nowhere in the Bible where they put patients on ventilators. Oh, is that hero- There's nowhere- yeah, heroic care a little bit. So yeah. that would be um, putting somebody on a respirator, okay. doing CPR. That would be putting feeding tubes in through patients' stomachs. So there's nowhere in the Bible is a talk about that kind of heroic care. So that's not a biblical precept or concept. Like a requirement. Not a requirement. So now there's nothing wrong. If you choose to do it, that's okay. There's nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't do that. But it used to be there was a sense that, you know, I think before Shivo and Cruzan and some of these other cases, these landmark cases where we learned a lot about dealing with patients who are severely disabled, mm-hmm. that it was okay to say it's it's reasonable to let them naturally die. I see. So that's a different narrative than what you were describing. So the uh, the push for physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, really, it really in the United States, it's physician-assisted suicide because euthanasia is not an option in the U.S. At least not yet. Not yet, but it, I mean, it's a, there's a debate out there. It may come up. Who knows? In the 2020 election, we may hear about it again. But I, I would say now, at least, the, there are options in some states for physician-assisted suicide. I would argue that um, think think carefully about whether that's the wisest thing for the believer. I don't think it is the wisest thing. Yeah. I think God really controls when we live and when he we has the die. Power of life he has death. the power of life and death. And um, if you're dying, then we will make sure that you're not suffering. You will have opportunity for closure with your family, and the process will occur. It is not to be fearful because it's a gateway to eternity. Death is a gateway to eternity. Yeah, well, one, so one question that comes to mind, though, and I and Doc, I don't hear you to be saying this, but like I can imagine somebody in the somebody who's listening to this coming back with this question. You know, isn't how does that not then extend to all of medicine? Like, can you help us? Like, like in a sense, you know, in the same way that medicine, like euthanasia, might be playing God. You know, is not all of medicine playing God? So the argument would go, you know, we're playing God by stopping life prematurely. We would also be playing God by sustaining a life beyond what it might otherwise, when it might otherwise naturally end. So how should we differentiate like saving lives from delaying the inevitable? Yeah, so that's a great question. And frequently, that's exactly how I frame it. So that there are lots of things that we can do. So frequently, what will happen in the intensive care unit is there will be this crescendo of activity as the illness is kind of unfolding. And um, you do reach a, a kind of a watershed moment where you realize that anything we do henceforth is not going to prolong life, but delay death. Mm. And so I will communicate exactly that way to the family, to the caretakers, to the decision maker, really. I'll explain to them that we're approaching what we would consider futile care. So we can continue, continue doing all the things that we're doing if you need that for yourself, but it's not going to change the outcome. They're on a pathway to death. So I, I do tell them, prepare yourself because it's coming and I can't stop it. I see what you're saying. Like, so can, it's like it's like a difference between uh, if, a, if a young person gets gets injured or something, like the expectation is that we're going to get them to a point where their right. body can sustain themselves. Correct. But at some point in a person's life, as their body breaks down, right. 
there's no reasonable expectation that the body is going to sustain itself yeah. and they're going to get back on their feet. Yeah. It's just a matter of are we slowing down the boulder yeah. or not? I mean, for example, in those situations, frequently these are patients who were on uh, respirators who have um, medications to support their blood pressure. We may even have devices in them to try and support the heart. And, and we can see that even despite all of this heroic care, they're dying. And so I will oftentimes counsel them. I'll say, we will continue it. If you wish, it would be reasonable to withdraw that support, target comfort, withdraw that heroic support, let them naturally die. Mm. So those are conversations that we will have at specific moments in a case. And that's obviously not for every case, but for those unique cases where it's clear to us we're just delaying the death and, yeah. and, the, and the agony that may be occurring with that. Yeah. One concern that I have even like, you know, personally, as we talked earlier about uh, uh, healthcare perhaps becoming more socialized, if you will, and the government is uh, making more decisions. Um, and I, I know there's a sense of fear that comes into play, like, well, if they're making the decisions, what if I'm in a state where I can't like voice my opinion or right. express my own desires and they start making what I would consider to be a very, very immoral and bad decision. Like right. what role does um, those kinds of wills or those testimonies play? Like should Christians be thinking about yeah, setting that, those up? That's a great question, Eric, because I actually think that everybody should have a an advanced directive. So even the 20-year-olds should have an advanced directive because you never know when the FedEx truck runs the red light and you're in my intensive care unit and you've got severe brain injury, and there's little chance you're going to return back to the life that you knew. So uh, those are things that each individual should kind of outline for themselves. Now, can, is there a, a, a one-size-fits-all for that? I mean, I would say typically no. Okay. Each case has to be taken individually. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with your own... Um, faith issues, a lot of that has to do with your own wishes, what you would want or not want. For example, I've already expressed to my wife, and I have it in a document, that if I had severe brain injury, there was no hope that I would recover a cognitive function, that I wouldn't want to be maintained on ventilators with feeding tubes for what purpose? So that I could, my body could live, but my mind was already gone. I'm ready to go home and be with my Lord and Savior. And, and so don't accelerate my death, yeah. <laughs> but, but you don't have to do heroic care for me in that situation. I'm ready to go. But that's, that's a private individual question that you need to kind of review with your doc. And by the way, it wouldn't be unreasonable to review those questions with your senior pastor or your elders oh, and, no, because good. those bring some spiritual issues into question so that you can sit down and debate and review and discuss some of the spiritual perspectives related to end-of-life decision-making. I think it's a good thing to do that. Oh, Brother, smart. that is such good counsel. Because, yeah. you know, like, it's hitting home for me because, you know, I had shared with you guys before, you know, my, my wife and I are starting to give some thought to, you know, estate planning. And it's not like we have this large estate to plan for, but it's just to get ahead of things and kind of say, you know, let's get these documents and plans laid out in writing up front. And it can be, you know, uncomfortable to have these kinds of conversations, but boy, are they important to have. Mm -hmm. And it's better to have them before the tragedy strikes. You know, all <laughs> these directives are kind of laid out, yeah, right. you know, and 
then the next point comes, you know, well, then should we see an estate planning attorney kind of help us sort out some of these documents, you know, and, and preparation? I think that makes sense. And that's that's typical counsel to give to folks who are kind of working through these kinds of questions. But to your point, in addition to an estate planning attorney, you know, definitely walk through some of these things with your elders. I, I right. think that is just such wise counsel before you then go and ratify documents in a right. game plan right. that that you know may or may not you know make sense for for you and your situation hmm, yeah. that's a good point yeah no I, I really appreciate it as well doc i mean that's very pastoral and and that is something that all christians should be thinking about like you know obviously family is important but the church has something you know has a role in this as well as far as caring yeah. for people who are yes. going through that kind of suffering and things like that mm -hmm. um Dylan, do you have any final questions you wanted to ask, Doc, before? Yeah, I mean, well, so one one other question that yeah. kind of comes to mind. You know, I, I like the category of heroic care that you were sharing, right? Because, like, we're all going to die. And it kind of gives mm -hmm. a framework for thinking about, you know, dire circumstances we'd be, we'd be fighting against to kind of keep someone in life support. You know, one, one question that comes to mind for me is how and when heroic care gets applied and being able to think through that. Like, does age play a role with it? Like, I'm thinking, you know— Maybe a maybe a patient's age could bias, you know, the extent to which heroic care is pursued, maybe for a 90-year-old versus a 30-year-old. So, like, on the one hand, we want to preserve the sanctity of life for all ages, and we want to avoid a kind of utilitarian ethic that just says, you know, your value as a human being is commensurate with what you produce for society. So we'll give you all this care when you're young and strong and productive. When you've passed your productive years, you know, we're slower to provide that care. At the same time, we naturally sense that, like, when someone is 90, they, you might not get the same right. heroic care. So, like, I, can, can you help us to think clearly about, like, maybe that distinction? What role does age play in, in a physician weighing out those questions? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I don't know how the government is going to handle this because, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I think pretense of knowledge be, because yeah, I think that's right, because we struggle with this because I have some very robust 90 year olds and some very decrepit 60 year olds. Right. Interesting. And, and so a lot of it has to do with quality of life and expectations hmm. for survival. So, hmm. you know, if you take a healthy 60-year-old and say, well, we found a mass in your lung, the best chance for survival is to remove that lung mass, um, then they are going to probably go for it. If you take a an unhealthy 80-year-old who we discover a lung mass, we will oftentimes counsel them, we'll say, A, you may not survive the surgery. So even though it's an option for you, you might not survive the surgery because of your other comorbidities, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, all the other problems that you have, it's a low probability you're going to survive the surgery. We have a better chance to give you better quality of life by doing something less invasive to manage your lung cancer. So again, those are very individualized decisions. Hmm. And most patients, it, which I have found is most patients kind of know instinctually hmm. what they do and don't want to have done. They just need a conversation with somebody. So they know, look, I can barely get from my bed to the bathroom. So you're not taking me to the operating room and taking part of my lung out. I don't have enough lung now, you know, <laughs> to get to the bathroom. So, you know, even if we were to mistakenly offer it to them, they would probably decline. So I think th that's why I'm a little fearful of government intervention here, because it really does have to be individualized. But as I said earlier, we have 90-year-olds that are having valve replacement, 
cardiac valve replacements hmm. because they're very healthy. They're still traveling internationally. They still some of them are still running companies, and they're very oh. very involved in their in their families' lives and in, in business lives. So I think it has to be individualized. So I don't know that you can have hmm. a age cutoff unless it's physiologic, not chronologic ages, because. There are very old 60-year-olds and oh, very yes. young 90-year-olds. That's true. Some people age differently. Each people They do age differently. Yeah. So I think it has to be individualized. That's why I think the UK's, you know, they have their universal health care. Um, they have cutoffs. But I think they, they felt they had to draw the line somewhere. So they had a cutoff at 65 for dialysis. And they have cutoffs for other surgery and other interventions because they can't afford all the health care for the entire country. Look, I think this country is heading towards that um, because it's very difficult to manage a country like this, where I think uh, health care now might be close to 20 percent of the budget of the of the uh, gross national uh, product. It's it's huge. It's a huge number. Mm. And uh, it just it's because our technology is so good and it gets better the drugs are more expensive. The devices are more expensive. The research is very expensive. You know, um, it's just hard to know how you're going to uh, allocate that. It's, and I think there will be tier. I'm guessing there's going to be tiers like there uh, is in the UK where everybody has universal health care. But then there are higher levels of health care that are offered for people who can afford it. Everyone's it, equal, but some are more equal than others. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> Who's that, George Orwell? Uh, Karl Marx. Yeah. Oh, that might be Marx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, this has been an awesome conversation, but, Doc, any final words that you have for our Christian listeners? Yeah, just, close? I think, as or I said— non-Christian listeners. Or yeah. non-Christian listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, um, the one thing that I would say is not to fear death. Because for the believer, it's the gateway to eternity, and that's that's a, a glorious thing. Yeah. We will be glorified with him in eternity. And so death is not to be feared. And death has been conquered, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're told that clearly yeah. in Scripture that, that, you know, oh, death, death where is your sting? Your sting? Yeah. So it's gone. You know, the, you know de the fear of death should be over. And the fear of dying uh, should really not be a problem. Just I would uh, really— implore you to communicate with your physician, with your spiritual advisors uh, about some of these end-of-life decision-making. And the sooner you do it, the better, quite frankly. But as you get older and start to accrue <laughs> these medical problems and it becomes clear to you that you're on that pathway, that is the time where don't delay, you know, because you're, you are heading into that zone, whether it's one year, 10 year, 20 years, it's coming. Nobody gets out of this life alive. <laughs> that much 100% death. death rate. Oh that much God. we know. I was like, what sure. would you be your advice to unbelievers or non-Christians who are listening? Well, it's, it's kind of the same advice, quite frankly. You should be in communication with your health care provider. And I would implore you to consider eternity. Because this may be, if you're listening to this podcast, it means that you're thinking about your own mortality. Mm. And, and there is a hereafter. There is a judgment uh, after you die. You aren't going to close your eyes and just be annihilated. You're going to open them in eternity somewhere. And mm. so I would advise that you speak with somebody that you trust, who you know loves you, and that can give you good counsel 
regarding the hereafter. And we believe uh, at this church, and I know you guys do, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is a pathway to a joyful, glorious eternity. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'm hearing in all this too, just a a parting thought that comes to mind for me, I'm hearing an impetus to holiness for Christians. I forget which Puritan pastor made this point, but basically makes the point that peace and peacefulness at death and with death is, you know, he said, is commensurate with peace of conscience. So like if you feel like you have lived a a good life or you've lived in a manner that's consistent with Christ's lordship, Mm -hmm. you know, then, then you, you feel like you feel like you have less to fear. And it's not as if that at the end of the day, this, that you feel like your salvation is based on your performance. It is to say that, you know, you feel like you are, you have kept yourself in the love of God in a way that helps you to close your eyes peacefully. And it gets tied back to, you know, you've trusted Christ for your salvation. You know that you've believed the gospel. You've repented of your sin. You've turned to him. And you trust, like to talk to your point, that when you open up your eyes, you will be in glory with your Lord and with the one whom you've pursued throughout your life. And having like, you can say like, having pursued him all of my life, that all of that buildup is like capital that's been amassed over the course of an entire lifetime that finally culminates in opening your eyes and seeing your Lord saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. Right. And that's just, that's amen. Right. I just, I love that. And so that would be something I I would encourage saints who are listening to as well is just, you know, reflect on your assurance Mm -hmm. in Christ and then pursue sanctification, run after Christ, because you will find a peace in your conscience as you close your eyes when that time comes. Yeah. No, thank you, Dylan, for that as well. And for bringing that up, that's powerful. And again, uh, Doc, thank you for for coming on today and to and talking about this very important uh, and difficult topic, I'm sure uh, you know people are going to have some more conversations as our culture continues down this 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 obsession with with death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just it's so remarkable when I read the proverbs and and you know, the, you know wisdom speaks out and says, "All who hate me love death," mm-hmm. and it's just very interesting and disturbing mm-hmm. that those who hate God and hate God's wisdom. They just love death. They love abortion. They love, they love euthanasia. Right. That you know, as, you know, both both ends of the human spectrum, right. death is creeping in, and mm-hmm. and it's just, yeah, it's just crazy to think about it. So we should be people that love life and honor yeah. life. So, yeah. um, again, if uh, those of you who are listening, if you have questions for Doc or for Dylan and myself, um, please uh, uh, go to our website, uh, twoguysinabible.org. That's the number twoguysinabible.org. There's a there's a way you can submit questions uh, through the online form there. You could just email us directly at twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com. And uh, please, I mean, you know, subscribe to our show, uh, rate us, thumbs up uh, or down as required, uh, five stars preferably. preferably. And, uh, you know, uh, we look forward to, to having Doc on again in the future for more conversations and topics such as this. So uh, with that, uh, until next time, Take care and God bless. God bless. God bless.